Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to this episode of MedHeads. And today we've got Dr. Savina Nithi Ananthan with us. Uh, otherwise known as Dr. Savina. How are you, Savina? Good, thank you, Virgil. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. So I thought we'd introduce the concept of lifestyle medicine. So first of all, how would you define lifestyle medicine? Look, Virgil, there are many ways to define it. I guess if you want to talk about the actual definition of what the American College of Lifestyle Medicine um explains it as it's sort of using evidence-based um lifestyle therapeutic interventions such as you know ex eating well exercising stress managing your stress avoiding use of risky substances and having a good social support to have a good healthy life basically um yeah but yeah all right so how would you I, define I it? Well, I mean, you know, it's, I would just define it as a system of interventions characterized by a whole food diet, appropriate exercise, appropriate abstinence, uh, and appropriate relationship stress management and appropriate sleep. But, you know, that's quite a cumbersome way of thinking about it. So I, I also think about lifestyle medicine in terms of the three F's and the three S's. So, you know, the three F's being the feet, the fork, the fingers, and the three S's being sleep, stress management, and socialization. So, you know, the feet represents exercise, the fork represents appropriate diet, and the fingers represent smoking cessation and um, alcohol in moderation and abstinence from other drugs. And then the three S's, sleep. So getting the right amount of sleep, getting the right quality of sleep stress management and also developing appropriate meaningful relationships with others that's how i consider lifestyle medicine to be uh, in, in its in wider uh, holistic approach but i suppose it's a useful way of introducing the concepts of lifestyle intervention so you know what do you think of when we consider the three uh, the three s's because you know you're dr savina and you you know i think you should be the one to describe <laughs> the three s's and I'll and do you the could three do the three Fs, why not? <laughs> well, I mean, look, I suppose I'll probably sort of take it to the concept of the blue zone. I'm not sure. It, I mean, I, I think you've, you're aware of it, um, the whole blue zone yeah. idea. Well, tell us, so, tell the viewers what the blue zone is. Yeah, it's really interesting. So basically, the um, one of the authors of National Geographic, Dan Bertner, he sort of sought out these five areas around the world where people were living more than 100 years old and they had no chronic disease so no diabetes no obesity no you know heart attacks strokes amazing right and um yeah. what he found were these places sort of range from um, kyoto in japan to sardinia in italy um to california like a yeah. place in california loma linda i think it was and yeah. what they found was they all had similar ideas on how to live and one of them, I guess, going back to my three S's um, would be, I suppose, yeah. they found that they kept their stress levels to a minimum, prioritized their life. Um, they yeah. had really good social support, good friendships, and they utilized these friendships and social support to get into exercise, which you would be talking about. And um, yeah. the other thing they talk about is the importance of sleep, you know, 
seven to nine hours of sleep. We don't get that very much these days, do you? Do you, Fergo, get seven to nine hours of sleep every night? Uh, <laughs> I used to be, <laughs> I used to be a more a, a night owl. I used to be one of those people that would you know stay up late and struggle to get up early in the morning. That's certainly when I was younger. That would be how I would characterize my sleep. But as I get older, I now like going to bed early and I like getting up early. Um, so I've actually changed and I, and, I, and I reflect upon that because I see a lot of younger patients, especially with mental health disorders and stress related disorders. And they all have, you know, the, the typical teenage delayed sleep phase disorder and they're all, you know, they're all night owls. But you're absolutely right to say that seven to nine hours sleep is the is the absolute sweet spot. So you you know if you're getting less than seven hours sleep a night, it, it's not good for your health. And if you're getting more than nine hours sleep a day for you for yourself, it can actually represent, or it can be the harbinger of of either physical or mental health problems. So, mm. um, you know the the days of the sleep deprived hero are over. You know the macho man that doesn't get any sleep that that just doesn't apply anymore. Because we know that lack of quality sleep actually affects your mortality, your longevity, and your morbidity in, in, in many ways. How would you describe that? Well, interestingly, um, as I was driving to work this morning, I was listening to a podcast on um, sleep. And it's yeah. six to six and a half hours of sleep, if, you, if that's all you get, it actually increases your risk of a cardiovascular event or a, or a stroke. Um, simple yeah. terms, a heart attack or a stroke. More than nine yeah. hours, it increases your risk of insulin resistance resulting in diabetes and obesity. Um, yeah. And that was quite interesting. It's that, as you said, the sweet spot. Um, and the other thing I suppose moving on with in terms of stress levels, Western world, you know, full of stress all the time. We've got deadlines to meet, traffic to get through, COVID thrown into the yeah. picture. It's all been quite stressful yeah. in our lives. Um, yeah. More than ever now, I think lifestyle interventions are needed to actually help cope with our current yeah. life, I think. Um, so how do we, how and, do we reduce our stress levels? What can we do? Well, first thing is to prioritize, put what we need, make a list of what's important in our life and make a plan as to what you need to do on that day or what's important to you yeah. and what's worth your time. That would be my right. take on how to manage stress levels. Um, so time management, also yeah. having pretty much, pretty much. Right. And I suppose also throw out the things that you feel like are not actually worth your time. You know, people, for example, who are constantly putting negative, you know, energy in your space, for example. I think, you know, if they're, that's all they do in your life, what benefit are they doing to us? How do you feel about doing something so, like that? Well, so what I'm hearing is, you know, stress management for you is all about, you know, uh, time management and getting rid of the energy vampires. That's a very good start. <laughs> but, you know, what if you're, what if the energy vampires in your life are your close relatives that you feel obliged to? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I also believe, not only do I believe in, in, you know, in prioritizing my goals in life, but I also believe in meditation, stress management and acceptance and commitment therapy and things like that. Have you, what, what's your view on those things? That would was my last step because what I find <laughs> lots of people always say, I don't have time for that. My life is busy enough and yeah. you know and it's a lot about educating and you know what i'm guilty of that too like you know i'm like now a mother and i'm like i've got no time for myself just me time and you think the last thing i need to do is to find time to do those therapies or find time for meditation it's hard but 
I think we come to that point when we realize that the stress is actually eating up and burning is done quickly. Imagine a candle that's burning and, you know, yeah. efficiency of that ca candle burning. We're just burning really quickly. So if we can just yeah. set a bit of time for ourselves each day to, or even yeah. to start off with a few times a week, I think that will help find time to do what you yeah. actually suggested. The yeah. other thing I use for stress management actually is the gym. I love the gym. Um, yeah. Yoga works for some. Going for a high intensity class works for some. That works for me personally. I just, you know, let go all my energy and my stress and everything at the gym and walk out feeling more refreshed. That's how I burn my stress levels. Um, yeah. At the same time, I get to do a bit of exercise. <laughs> Two in one. You do. You do. You do. Yeah. yeah. So, I yeah. mean, you know, if we're talking about stress management and, you know, these, you know, you've mentioned yoga and you've mentioned meditation. When I was a young uh, postgraduate, I used to think that that just didn't work. I didn't believe in the value of talking therapies and meditation, in the, and, and I didn't believe in its therapeutic benefit. It's only after I read the studies that demonstrated actual structural brain changes that 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 I really began to appreciate the absolute power of these interventions. So you know, we know that people who who practice daily yoga. You know, they have higher thicknesses or greater thicknesses in their prefrontal cortices, and they you know they can manage pain. They've got a better pain tolerance than those that don't. You know, so you know we know that people who meditate, you know, are able to change the way that their descending modulation of their in their spinal cord works, so that they can actually they can they are more resilient. And another, I mean, the corollary of that is actually we also know that loneliness causes the same brain changes in people as does physical pain. So, you know, it, 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 you cannot separate out, you know, the emotions, the environment, the, the psychology from the body. And, and trying to do so and trying to make them two separate different, uh, you know, arts or disciplines is, is just false. It's a false division. It's a Cartesian division that no longer serves our understanding of, of the of the human body and mind. Mm, I agree. Um, but, you know, I suppose the other thing you've got to think about, I mean, I'm pretty sure you've been in the same scenario, like in the last year, and I take it back to the pandemic that we're living through at the moment, um, mm. you see more mental health, you see more people's diabetes control getting worse, people's weight increasing. And I guess, yeah. you know, what do we have to say? It's been all the lockdowns, especially being Victorians, you know, spending so much yeah. of time in lockdown all of last year, the impact it's had on our mental health and physical health. So case in point. Yeah. Yeah. So I hear what you're saying about COVID, but I take it uh, back further. I take it back to prehistory. So, you know, when when we were living in prehistory, our very survival depended on us being part of a greater tribe that would defend us from marauding animals, for instance. And to be ostracized from the tribe was literally a death sentence. And so that, for, for me, that, 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 that deep-seated fear of ostracization uh, triggers our, our loneliness response. And we also know that, that, that loneliness, per se, is a risk factor for death, for, for increased pain, for depression, for major cardiovascular disease events, strokes, Alzheimer's disease, you know, all, all of these things, all of these physical problems are directly contributed to by social isolation, by the feeling of loneliness, by, by, by how we feel inside ourselves. So again, this is yet another example of how our, our, our attempts to separate out 
the mind from the body no longer work and no longer are able to fully explain our human condition and the suffering of our human condition. And if you think about it, really, our, you know, in the Western world, again, you know, we are spending so much of time on the road at our work, you know, just doing things. Mm -hmm. How much of time do we actually spend socializing? And when we do, which I think will be a good yeah. segue to your next bit, we tend to sort of do risky substances <laughs> while we're at it. You know, let's right. go out for so Friday let's... night drinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've done the three S's. We've done Savina's three S's. So let's do Fergal's three F's. So my three F's are the feet, the fork, and the fingers, right? So yeah, I mean, your segue into um, substances. So the fingers remind us that we should not use our fingers to smoke. So I, look, I really don't believe that we need to say anything other than it's bad for people to smoke. The, the, the messages are so uh, available to, you know, they're not, they're all readily available. Smoking cessation has got to be the cornerstone and pillar of any lifestyle intervention for any patient for any chronic disease. I, I don't think that anyone would argue with that. But there, you know, there are the other substances. So the next one to think about would be alcohol. So the, the Australian uh, guidelines for the, the maximum recommended alcohol consumption have actually changed in the last couple of years. So we're now saying that you shouldn't really drink any more than 10 standard drinks a week or no more than four standard drinks in any given day. Now, if you think that a can or a bottle of mid-strength beer has got one and a half units roughly, that's about eight beers a week no more than three beers or two and a half to three beers a day on any given day. So that might come as a surprise to some people. And I certainly look after people for whom the weekly recommendations they take as their daily recommendation, you know, so it, 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 it's important to consider uh, alcohol and its long term effects. And we know that alcohol produces effects not just in the liver. You know, you know, where else? Where, where would? You, where have you seen uh, alcohol affect organ systems? You know, what other organ well, systems have you seen it affect? Definitely, and I can take you back to when I was an intern, um, when I in ED, and I had the, I saw this old man who was stumbling across the corridors, and I thought, oh, here comes a drunk old man. Is what I thought. You know, this was at two in the morning, really, and oh. he actually had. Wernicke-Kosakoff syndrome, which is basically damage to the brain, um, resulting in an imbalance yeah. and a staggering walk. Um, and yeah. you don't think about it very often, but it actually does happen. Um, yeah. and that's one of the things. The other things that can happen is um, memory loss, trouble focusing, yeah. concentration. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. that would be some of the effects on the brain. Your heart, yeah. heart failure. It can result heart, in heart, heart failure, failure, difficulty Absolutely, breathing. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's really important for people to understand that, that alcohol doesn't just cause disease in the liver, it causes disease in practically every organ system of the body. So that's why we say we need to limit our consumption down to 10, 10 drinks a week and no more than four drinks in any given day. And then, of course, it's, you know, I suppose it does go without saying that we as lifestyle practitioners and physicians and advisors should also advocate for the complete abstinence from other drugs, including, you know, the lifestyle drugs like cannabis or, or speed or ecstasy or anything like that. So, you know, we do need to say to people, look, it's it's not part of, of what we advise. And we, in fact, we advise against the, the consumption of these drugs. So those are the fingers. And then, of course, we come to the fork diet. Now, diet, as you know, is a huge subject, but could I ask you to summarize your views on diet? So a lifestyle diet is basically eating whole foods, 
plant predominant yeah, yeah. foods basically that's it really so yeah. you know yeah. you know how long are the gone are the days where you think carbs are bad complex carbs yeah. are actually really good for you so you know sweet potatoes pumpkins they're all pretty good yeah. carbs to have they fill you up so carbs are actually yeah. not bad they're not the enemy they're not um, the enemy yeah but neither is fat fat's not the enemy hmm. yeah fat fat doesn't make you fat trans fats are the enemy but you know the saturated fats in a small amount is not the enemy but certainly trans fats are, are the enemy but also other facts other fats like mufas and poofas are very healthy for you so what are mufas and poofas so basically they are based good fats that you get from eating yeah. uh, for example chia seeds and um what else can you get them from i'm having a olive mind oil. spot mind blank at the moment olive oil yeah uh, avocados yeah. um Avocado, lots of nuts Nola. Yeah. yeah, nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So we can yes. we can actually get a lot of healthy, nutritious uh, food, uh, you know, from from fats in our diet. So fats are not the enemy. Um, what I would I mean, there are there are a number of debates recently, aren't there? I mean, like eggs, it used to be said that eggs was always bad for you. And, you know, there was a study that came out that said if you had more than five eggs a week, you were much more likely to have diabetes and heart disease compared to people who only had, had one egg a week. But that's all changed now, hasn't it? What, what's, what's the... Um, yeah, pretty much. What's the, what's the issue with eggs? I think basically eating in moderation is the idea behind it. Not overdoing it, yeah. not underdoing it. Yeah. yeah. So if you're yeah. having, you know, three to four eggs a day, every day, that is a lot. Um, yeah. You do need eggs. You do, you do get your protein from it too. So no, I wouldn't yeah. say eggs are, the, yeah. are a bad thing too. They're not, they're not the enemy either. What about that? What about processed meat? <laughs> what about the salamis, the the bacon's, the dried meat, the jerky, all that kind of stuff? <laughs> well, Fergal, I think the idea with food, eat the. I, I guess to summarize it, because I guess you know, just knowing in the interest of time, we're also going through. If you can't, the idea is that if you can't visualize that where that food came from. And if you can't just imagine the steps that it's gone through, it's probably not worth going into your tummy. I think that's basically the idea. So you can imagine yeah. bacon, salamis, your prosciuttos. I can't even imagine the processes they would have gone through, the amount of processing would have gone through. Definitely unhealthy. <laughs> that would be the yeah. take home thing well, I would say. We also know that, that, that processed meat, red, red processed meat is actually a, a, a WHO class one carcinogen. It causes yes. cancer. Uh, and we also know that meat, red meat, also is a suspect, suspected carcinogen and um, may cause cancer. And we also know that the, you know, the substitution of meat for nuts, for, for uh, mufas and poofas and for whole grains actually reduces your risk of both, uh, well, of diabetes. So, you know, a, a reduction in red meat is actually beneficial for the management of diabetes, isn't it? Definitely, and bowel cancer. I remember in yeah. med school, you know, it was ingrained in my head. Men, red meat intake, low fiber intake, risk factors for bowel cancer. Yeah. 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 So we've talked about red meat. We've talked about uh, eggs. We've talked about emphasizing, uh, you know, a, a plant-based diet. We've talked about a whole food diet. But look, it's, it's not necessarily a single. I don't think it's important to single out a specific food group. I think it's important to, to identify a pattern of eating. 
So there are a number of diets that, 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 that advocate patterns of eating, but you know, the Mediterranean diet's got good evidence, both for primary and secondary prevention, hasn't it? Mm, definitely. And uh, there's a lot of studies to back that up. Um, you yeah. know, it yeah. reduces the risk of heart disease and diabetes, um, yeah. improves longevity yeah. and life expectancy. So, yeah. Yeah. and it's not a hard diet to follow, to be honest. No. So how would you characterize the Mediterranean diet? Well, I guess, you know, in terms of a Mediterranean diet, lots of grains, your moofers yeah. and poofers, having little yeah. red meat um, and having, well, having your carbs, but having your healthy amount of carbs and your good, um, your complex carbs, but to a smaller extent. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, olive oil, you know, you know, we're in the Mediterranean area. Oh, yes. so we, of course. Yeah. We need to think about olive oil as well. Yeah. So, um, We've talked about diet. We've talked about the benefits of diet for primary and secondary prevention. Now let's move on to exercise. How much, and that's the feet. So the, the, the final F is the feet. So how much exercise should people be doing? Usual guidelines, 150 minutes a week. You can break it up however you like to break it up. 30 minutes, five times a week. I think lots of people would have heard lots of doctors recommending that. Um, and if they mm -hmm. can't do 100, you know, 30 minutes, five times a week, break it up to two sessions of 75 minutes a week. That's the yeah. general guideline. But I guess in the end, it comes down to what exactly are we aiming for, isn't it, Virgo? Did you want to yeah. elaborate on that based on studies, I suppose? Well, well the, you know, the bottom line is the best exercise is the exercise that someone's going to do. So, so we know that there's a kind of a linear relationship between how active people are and a reduction in their risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. We, we also know, however, that you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. So if you're trying to lose weight, then you need to actually use exercise in conjunction with, it, with improvements in diet. But if we're just focusing on exercise, you know, I recommend 150 minutes a week, as you say, of brisk walking. And, and the, people ask me, well, what, what does brisk walking mean? And I say, well, it means that you can walk, you can walk and talk, but you cannot walk and sing. So when you're at that level of intensity, that's what most people should be aiming for, for, as you say, 30 minutes, five times a week or 150. But we do know that the more you do, there is a little bit more of a, of a benefit to, to when you get to 300 minutes, but more than 300 minutes of exercise uh, per week you tend to get a plateauing of the intensity benefit ratio. But I think then there's also the issue of high intensity exercise that we can talk about as well. You know, there, there, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that, that actually being very, very intense in your exercise, but actually for small amounts of time does also have its own unique health benefits. But we will have to talk about that in another video because unfortunately, Savina, we have run out of time so yes, I want have. to thank you for yes, joining me today and I look forward to speaking with you again very shortly. Dr. Savina, Likewise. thank you very much. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next time.